Chapter 103 Measurement of the Whale Skeleton In the first place, I wish to lay before you a particular plain statement touching the living bulk of this leviathan, whose skeleton we are briefly to exhibit. Such a statement may prove useful here. According to a careful calculation I have made, in which I partly base upon Captain Scoresby's estimate of 70 tons for the largest-sized Greenland whale of 60 feet in length, according to my careful calculation, I say, a sperm whale of the largest magnitude, between 85 and 90 feet in length, and something less than 40 feet in its fullest circumference, such a whale will weigh at least 90 tons, so that, reckoning 13 men to a ton, he would considerably outweigh the combined population of a whole village of 1,100 inhabitants. Think you not, then, that brains, like the oak cattle, should be put to this leviathan to make him at all budge to any landsman's imagination? Having already in various ways put before you his skull, spout hole, jaw, teeth, tail, forehead, fins, and divers other parts— I shall now simply point out what is most interesting in the general bulk of his unobstructed bones. But as the colossal skull embraces so very large a proportion of the entire exitant of the skeleton, as it is by far the most complicated part, and as nothing is to be repeated concerning it in this chapter, you must not fail to carry it in your mind or under your arm as we proceed Otherwise, you will not gain a complete notion of the general structure we are about to view. In length, the sperm whale skeleton at Tranqua measured 72 feet, so that when fully invested and extended in life, he must have been 90 feet long. For in the whale, the skeleton loses about one-fifth of length compared with the living body. Of this 72 feet, his skull and jaw comprised some 20 feet, leaving some fifty feet of plain backbone. Attached to this backbone, for something less than a third of its length, was the mighty circular basket of ribs which once enclosed his vitals. To me, this vast ivory-ribbed chest, with the long, unrelieved spine, extending far away from it in a straight line, not a little resembled the hull of a great ship new laid upon the stocks, when only some twenty of her naked bow ribs are inserted, and the keel is otherwise for the time, but a long, disconnected timber. The ribs were ten on a side. The first, to begin from the neck, was nearly six feet long. The second, third, and fourth were each successively longer, till you came to the climax of the fifth, or one of the middle ribs, which measured eight feet and some inches. From that part, the remaining ribs diminished, till the tenth and last only spanned five feet and some inches. In general thickness, they all bore a seemly correspondence to their length. The middle ribs were the most arched. In some of the Aracetes, they are used for beams whereon to lay footpath bridges over small streams. In considering these ribs, I could not but be struck anew with the circumstance so variously repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale is by no means the mold of his invested form. The largest of the ribs, one of the middle ones, occupied that part of the fish which, in life, is greatest in depth. Now, the greatest depth of the invested body of this particular whale 
must have been at least sixteen feet, whereas the corresponding rib measured but little more than eight feet, so that this rib only conveyed half of the true notion of the living magnitude of that part. Besides, for some way, where I now saw but a naked spine, all that had been once wrapped round with tons of added bulk and flesh, muscle, blood, and bowels. Still more, for the ample fins, I here saw but a few disordered joints, and in place of the weighty and majestic but boneless flukes, an utter blank. How vain and foolish, then, thought I, for timid, untraveled man to try to comprehend aright this wondrous whale by merely poring over his dead skeleton stretched in this peaceful wood. No. Only in the heart of quickest perils, only when within the eddyings of his angry flukes, only on the profound, unbounded sea can the fully invested whale be truly and livingly found out. But the spine. For that, the best way we can consider it is, with a crane, to pile its bones high up on end. No speedy enterprise, but now it's done, it looks much like Pompey's pillar. There are forty and odd vertebrae in all, which in the skeleton are not locked together. They mostly lie like the great knobbed blocks on a Gothic spire, forming solid courses of heavy masonry. The largest, a middle one, is in width something less than three feet, and in depth more than four. The smallest, where the spine tapers away into the tail, is only two inches in width, and looks something like a white billiard ball. I was told that there were still smaller ones, but they had been lost by some little cannibal urchins, the priest children, who had stolen them to play marbles with. Thus we see how that the spine of even the hugest of living things tapers off at last into simple child's play. Chapter 104 The Fossil Whale From his mighty bulk, the whale affords a most congenial theme whereon to enlarge, amplify, and generally expatiate. Would you? You could not compress him. By good rights he should only be treated of an imperial folio, not to tell over again his furlongs from spiracle to tail, and the yards he measures about the waist. Only think of the gigantic involutions of his intestines, where they lie in him like great cables and hawsers coiled away in the subterranean orlop deck of a line of battleship. Since I have undertaken to manhandle this leviathan, it behooves me to approve myself omnisciently exhaustive in the enterprise, not overlooking the minutest seminal germs of his blood, and spinning him out to the uttermost coil of his bowels. Having already described him in most of his present habituatory and anatomical peculiarities, it now remains to magnify him in an archaeological fossilfarious and antediluvian point of view. Apply to any other creature than the Leviathan, to an ant or a flea, such portly terms might justly be deemed unwarrantable, grandiose. But when Leviathan is the text, the case is altered. Fain am I to stagger to this emprise under the weightiest words of the dictionary. And here be it said that whenever it has been convenient to consult one in the course of these dissertations, I have invariably used a huge quarto edition of Johnson, 
expressly purchased for that purpose. Because that famous lexographer's uncommon personal bulk more fitted him to compile a lexicon to be used by a whale author like me. One often hears of writers that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. How, then, with me, writing of this Leviathan? Unconsciously, my chirography expands into placard capitals. Give me a condor's quill. Give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand. Friends, hold my arms. For in the mere act of penning my thoughts on this Leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their outreaching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences and all the generations of whales and men and mastodons, past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme. We expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. No great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Ere entering upon the subject of fossil whales, I present my credentials as a geologist by stating that in my miscellaneous time I have been a stonemason, and also a great digger of ditches, canals, and wells, wine vaults, cellars, and cisterns of all sorts. Likewise, by way of preliminary, I desire to remind the reader that while in the earlier geological strata there are found the fossils of monsters, now almost completely extinct, the subsequent relics discovered in what are called the tertiary formations seem the connecting, or at any rate intercepted links, between the antichronical creatures and those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the ark. All the fossil whales hitherto discovered belong to the tertiary period, which is the last preceding the superficial formations. And though none of them precisely answer to any known species of the present time, they are yet sufficiently akin to them in general respects to justify their taking rank as Cetacean fossils. Detached broken fossils of pre-Adamite whales, fragments of their bones and skeletons, have within thirty years past, at various intervals, been found at the base of the Alps, in Lombardy, in France, in England, in Scotland, and in the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Among the more curious of such remains is part of a skull, which in the year 1779 was disinterred in the Rue Dauphin in Paris, a short street opening almost directly upon the Palace of the Tuileries, and bones disinterred in excavating the great docks of Antwerp in Napoleon's time. Cuvier pronounced these fragments to have belonged to some utterly unknown Leviathanic species. But by far the most wonderful of all cetacean relics was the almost complete vast skeleton of an extinct monster found in the year 1842 on the plantation of Judge Craw in Alabama. The awestruck and credulous slaves in the vicinity took it for the bones of one of the fallen angels. The Alabama doctors declared it a huge reptile and bestowed upon it the name of Basilorus. But some specimen bones of it being taken across the sea to Owen, the English anatomist, it turned out that this alleged reptile was a whale, 
though of a departed species. A significant illustration of the fact, again and again repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale furnishes but little clue to the shape of his fully invested body. So Owen rechristened the monster Zeglodon, and in his paper read before the London Geological Society, pronounced it, in substance, one of the most extraordinary creatures which the mutations of the globe have blotted out of existence. When I stand among these mighty leviathan skeletons, skulls, tusks, jaws, ribs, and vertebrae, all characterized by partial resemblances to the existing breeds of sea monsters, but at the same time bearing, on the other hand, similar affinities to the annihilated antichronical leviathans, their incalculable seniors. I am, by a flood, borne back to that wondrous period, ere time itself can be said to have begun, for time began with man. Here Saturn's great chaos rolls over me, and I obtain dim, shuddering glimpses into those polar eternities, when wedged bastions of ice pressed hard upon what are now the tropics. And in all the 25,000 miles of this world's circumference, not an inhabitable hand's breadth of land was visible. Then the whole world was the whales, and king of creation he left his wake along the present line of the Andes and the Himalayas. Who can show a pedigree like Leviathan? Ahab's harpoon had shed older blood than the pharaohs. Methuselah seems a schoolboy. I look round to shake hands with Shem. I am horror-struck, at this anti-mosaic, unsourced existence of the unspeakable terrors of the whale, which, having been before all time, must needs exist, after all humane ages are over. But not alone had this leviathan left his preadamite traces in the stereotype plates of nature, and in limestone and marl bequeaths his ancient bust, but upon Egyptian tablets whose antiquity seems to claim for them an almost fossilfarious character, we find the unmistakable print of his fin. In an apartment of the great temple of Dendera, some fifty years ago, there is discovered upon the granite ceiling a sculptured and painted planisphere, abounding in cenotaphs, griffins, and dolphins, similar to the grotesque figures on the celestial globe of the moderns. Gliding among them, Old Leviathan swam as of yore, was there swimming in that planisphere, centuries before Solomon was cradled. Nor must there be omitted another strain attestation of the antiquity of the whale, in his own osseous post-diluvian reality, as set down by the venerable John Leo, the old Barbary traveler. Not far from the seaside they have a temple, the rafters and beams of which are made of whale bones. For whales, of a monstrous size, are oftentimes cast up dead upon that shore. The common people imagine that by a secret power bestowed by God upon the temple, no whale can pass it without immediate death. But the truth of the matter is that on either side of the temple there are rocks that shoot two miles into the sea. They keep a whale's rib of an incredible length for a miracle— which lying upon the ground with its convex part uppermost makes an arch, the head of which cannot be reached by a man upon a camel's back. This rib, says John Leo, is said to have lain there a hundred years before I saw it. 
their historians affirm that a prophet who prophesied of Mohammed came from this temple, and some do not stand to assert that the prophet Jonas was cast forth by the whale at the base of the temple. In this Afric temple of the whale I leave you, reader, and if you be an Antucketer and a whaleman, you will silently worship there. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.